Well, good morning. How's everyone doing? Did, it, did anyone else have neighbors that spent their whole uh, stimulus check on illegal fireworks? Or was that just my neighbors? Because all of them had that. So did anyone spend their whole stimulus check on illegal fireworks? No one's admitting to that. Okay. Well, welcome to Redemption Parker. We're glad you're here. My name is Mark. If you're just joining us, uh, we are, uh, as a church family, working through the gospel of Matthew. We're calling it the king and the kingdom as, as that is Matthew's focus. And it should be our focus to recalibrate our hearts and lives uh, to that which is of ultimate impo- importance. Jesus is that king and the kingdom is uh, coming down as in heaven as in, on, on earth as it is in heaven. And if you were with us last week, uh, Pastor Matthew preached at the end of Matthew chapter 11. Today we'll be in chapter 12, but I just want to read what Pastor Matthew preached on last week, and then uh, we we will jump from there. So Matthew chapter 11, we'll pick it up in verse 28. I'll read as you listen carefully. This is God's word. Jesus speaking. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen. This is God's word. So if you were like me last week and you read those words and you heard Matthew preach on those words, then there was something in you that was stirred that said, yes, come to Jesus. Yes, my, I am heavy laden, I am burdened, I am living a, a frenetic uh, life, and I, I need that rest. And so hopefully last week that stirred that in you. And, and maybe you heard that last week and you just radically reoriented your life to the, the rest and the peace that is found in Jesus alone. And, and if that's the case, then, then you can just, you can take off for today because you don't need to hear part two of that message. No, actually better yet, if, if you so embrace that message, why don't you just come up here right now on stage? I'll give you this. You could teach us how that was done. Because the thing is, though we know it and though that, that's what Jesus said, like to actually embrace it, to actually uh, go down a path where we find rest for our souls. Man, that seems so elusive in our time and in our culture. You know, uh, a few weeks ago, I, I came across something. If you were to leave here out of these doors and walk down Main Street and, and go through the farmer's market today and maybe pick up some local honey and a gourmet tea and keep going, on your right would be O'Brien Park. And if you come to uh, an intersection there of uh, Main Street and uh, Parker Road and, and hit the button and cross the street, uh, it wouldn't be long before you come to another smaller, lesser known park called, called Living Wheel Park. Living Wheel Park. And in this park, uh, I just discovered a couple of weeks ago, uh, I saw something that immediately made me think of the, the, the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts in, in Acts chapter 17. When he goes to Athens and he walks around the city and he sees these statues, these, these gods and goddesses of Roman gods and Greek gods. And, and while it's not made of uh, marble, it's made of bronze, uh, I thought, man, this seems like a god of our age. This seems so ingrained in what we are as a people uh, that, that you won't find people uh, going to the statue. They won't be off making their offerings. They won't be uh, bringing their kids. They won't be praying to the statue because oh, the statue is more uh, what it represents in our heart and our collective consciousness. 
In fact, if I, if I didn't even mention it to you, anything to you and you were to stumble across it, what you would probably feel in that moment, just subconsciously, if not consciously, you, you would look at the statue and you would say, yes, that's right. You would read the plaque and you'd be like, okay, you know, I, I agree with that. I need to change some things in my life to better represent what this statue is trying to communicate to me. That's probably what, what you would feel. It's so ingrained in us. What is this statue? Actually, I took a selfie with it yesterday. It's called the self-made man. We got another picture of it here. The self-made man. It, it is th- this picture of this larger-than-life character carving himself out of the stone. In fact, if you were to read the plaque, here's what the plaque would say. Man carving himself out of stone, carving his character, carving his future. And again, there's part of us that's like, yes, man, we, we determine our destiny. And so we, we give our lives to that. And, and he, you can look at it. He's carved his abs. He's, I, I don't know how he's gotten to this point, but he's just chipping away, chipping away, chipping away. And there's part of us that's like, yes, we determine our future. But then there's also part of us that that's, that's what we do. That's why we're so tired. That's why we're so exhausted. We think if we just do a little bit more, that some future version of ourselves will be happy with ourselves or or our our friends or family, our spouse, our God will be happy with us if he could just chip away a little bit more. We're not sure how he got to this point, but the the idea is like if he just goes at it for a little bit longer, eventually he's going to get to a point to chip away that last bit of bronze and he's going to step down from his pedestal and he's going to walk into his future that he's carving for themselves. And as Americans, we're like, yeah, that, that, that's right. And in fact, there, there's no accident while, while this particular sculpture is in our city, as Matthew pointed out last week, by and large, we do a good job at this. 58% of the adults in our community have a college degree as opposed to 34% nationally. Uh, the average household income in our community is $120,000 as opposed to $60,000 nationally. So we pat ourselves on the back. We put up the statue. We carve our character. We carve our future. And we're exhausted. And it's killing us. We think uh, a future version of ourselves. That's when, when we'll be satisfied and God will be satisfied. So we're going to eat better. That's what we're going to do this year. We're going to put away the potato chips. And we're going to eat the kale chips. And we're going to get a gym membership. And I'm going to close that deal. And I'm going to climb that rung of the ladder. I'm going to get another degree. I'm going to get a boyfriend or a girlfriend. I'm going to get a, a wife or a husband. I'm going to get a new wife or a new husband. Whatever it is, it's always just a little bit beyond our grasp. If we just carve a little bit more, we'll have arrived. What will have justified our existence. It makes me think of Rocky. You know, that, that kid from Philadelphia. The first movie, not the, not a, none of the other ones, but the, the one that was good. When, when he's trying to make his way up and, and he's going to fight the heavyweight champion, Paulo Creed, and, and he's trying to just, he's having this conversation with Adrian, and, and he says this, if I can go the dis- distance, you see, and that bell rings and I'm still standing, I'm going to know for the first time in my life, see, that I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. He's trying to justify his existence. If I just chip away a little bit further and I'm standing at the end, I'm not just a bum anymore. 
And this is just, this is just inundated uh, us as Americans. And now, now, not to say that hard work isn't good. It is good and it's biblical. But, but anything that is good that becomes a God becomes an idol. And it cannot bear up under the weight of our worship and our expectation. It ends up uh, crushing us. And I think that's kind of where we're at as, as a culture. We're, we're being crushed by the weight of our expectation, our, our striving, our straining, trying to get there. The, th- the beautiful thing I, I think about last week's message and, and God's word in Matthew chapter 11, it ends there. But, but when, when Matthew is writing this, he's not putting in the chapter breaks. In, in chapter 12, he's actually going to show us a, a tangible path for us to walk on to experience the rest and the renewal that our souls and our spirits and our bodies and our minds so long for. But before we get there, we've we got to set up some context. If you have your Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 is when, when God gives Charlton Heston the law on the stones. You know what I'm talking about? No one? Does that, did I date myself? Thank you, Joe. Thank you. I know you guys don't say amen. Apparently the mass blocked that. But uh, no, nevertheless, this is the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments, the biggies, right? And when you read these, at first, they kind, they kind of make sense, right? So the first you have to do with our worship of God. And he says, don't have any other idols. And again, many good things can become God things and they become idols. And, and that makes sense because he is the only God. And he says, if you have idols, even the best things, if you begin to uh, put an, a worship and an expectation on them, they're going to destroy you. So, so, for example, husbands and wives are good gifts from God. But if you make your husband and wife the point of, of your existence and of your worship, it will be a miserable marriage. Children are good gifts from God, but they make little tyrants as idols and as gods. And they will run your life. Work is a good gift from God, but if, that's, if it is your God where you find all your source and meaning and purpose, then, then you always have to climb to the next ladder and the next rung on the ladder and the next one and the next one, and you will never arrive. You will never be satisfied and so on and so on. For us. So we, we, get the, we get the command not to have idols. And then the other ones make sense as well, right? If we're going to be an international, intergenerational community of God's people, honor your father and your mother. Okay, that makes sense. Don't murder one another. Okay, that seems like a pretty good uh, law to have. Hey, why don't you tell each other the truth and not lie to, another, to one another? Okay. Hey, marriage is so important that don't, don't, don't sleep around, but only uh, in the context of a covenant lifelong commitment to one another uh, enter into marriage. Don't commit adultery. He'll say, uh, don't, don't look at your neighbor, his, his wife or his donkey or, or his Tesla, whatever it is, and don't daydream how you can get that for yourself. That, that, that wouldn't honor them. Don't lie to each other. So all these make sense, right? In fact, they don't even seem that kind of burdensome. They, they, they seem kind of like a, a good gift from God for God's people. But then there's this one in the middle. And it's in the tin. And honestly, in 2020, in America, we don't even know really what to do with it. And we don't do very well with it, honestly. So let's look at it. Verse 8 of Exodus chapter 20. It says, remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. 
For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. It's this command. It's one of the ten to keep the Sabbath. And again, it's hard for us to, to understand just how obsessive the Jewish people were about this and why God would give this. One commentator I read this week was that the Sabbath was the only distinctive part of ancient Israelite religion among the other religions. Other religions had temples. Other religions had, had prayers and worship and sacrifices. They, they even in ancient Egypt had circumcision. But for God's people... He says, this law, keep the Sabbath, was totally unique. And there would be other laws in the Old Testament just zealously keeping this law. Again, we don't really get this, but but just to kind of put it in context, in the time between uh, Malachi writing and and Matthew, the the intertestamental period, we read in the book of Maccabees that that when Israel, when God's people were attacked, the, the enemies came and attacked them on the Sabbath so that man, women, child, all were put to death because they would not fight and defend themselves on the Sabbath. That's how obsessive they were about it. Same thing happened in the year 67 BC when Pompey sieged Jerusalem. He did it on a Saturday because he knew they wouldn't fight back. Even today, there is a, there, there's an industry with Orthodox Jews uh, of smartphone apps and, and lighting to, to time it so that you're not doing any work, turning on lights or, or cooking your food, but everything is provided for you. If you were to go to Israel today and on a Saturday go into a hotel, uh, the, the elevator doors would open automatically and it would go to preordained specific floors so that you don't do the work of pressing the button. We just don't understand that. We've so far swung the pendulum so far away from that. We know our righteousness is not based on us observing the Sabbath, and so we just ignored it. And we're going to come and see on the other side of the pendulum that there is a people in Jesus' day that have so twisted the Sabbath that they have gone to the other side. It's, it's called the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees. They were both the, the, keeper, the teachers of the law and, and the keepers of the law to make sure everyone keeps it. Kind of like a modern-day Taliban in Afghanistan. They, they teach it, and they make sure you keep it. And so in the first century, they had come up with an additional 39 Sabbath day laws to make sure they kind of buffer you so that you didn't break the Sabbath. And so they had laws about you can't carry anything because you might be tempted to do some work. You can wear the clothes on your back, but you can't carry any clothes because you might wash them or something like that. They had laws about how far you could travel. So you could travel about 3,000 feet from your home. But here's the deal. If you were going to go visit a friend or family within that 3,000 foot, say 1,500 feet over, then you would get to reset that 3,000 feet from there. And they just had very specific, detailed laws of what you could and couldn't do. Now, the reason I mention all that is because Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience that understands all that. They're they're steeped in that. And so we need to kind of understand just how obsessive they are and then see what Jesus actually desires, not only for them, but for us and how it is the answer to, to the question, how do we come to Jesus and find rest and renewal for our souls? And so let's begin in Matthew chapter 12. Let's unpack it. 
says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. So presumably, he's on a walk uh, within that 3,000-foot range of his house and with his disciples. And they're walking through the grain fields. And their hands are hitting the tops of the grain. It says, his disciples were hungry. And they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. Luke's gospel tells us they began to rub them together, blow off the chaff, and, and throw it in their mouth, and they ate. I don't know what that tastes like, just wheat like, I'm guessing grape nuts, which are neither grape nor nuts, but that's neither here nor there. So he, uh, they're, they're eating this as a little bit of a snack. Verse 2, but when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. The charge is they're breaking God's law. How are they breaking God's law? Well, they're harvesting and they're winnowing. They're preparing a meal. And Jesus is going to be like, you are ridiculous. (laughs) You don't understand. And so Jesus is going to uh, uh, respond to them. Now, at first glance, how Jesus responds uh, on the surface just seems like Jesus saying, no, 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 there's exceptions. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Again, Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience. He's trying to show that Jesus, what he's about to say is very specific. We'll see here in a moment. Verse 3. He said to them, Jesus said to them, Have you not read? So he's talking to people that have read and have memorized the Old Testament. And so he's, he's kind of playing with them here. Have you not read? What David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only the priests. Again, he's not just saying, hey, there's exceptions in your scripture to this. He's pointing to someone very specific. He's pointing to King David. Remember, we're talking about the king and the kingdom. And David was the one that they hoped in, that that from his line, a king of kings would come and reign forever. And Jesus says, hey, you know how, how, how that didn't apply to David? If you understand how it didn't apply to David, you should know that there's a greater David who has come. But, but he's going to get more and more explicit. He talks about the, the, the present, the bread of the presence. In John's gospel, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He, he's going to make this argument that everything that the law, including the Sabbath, everything that the law uh, pointed to, it all pointed to him. And so he says, I'm David. I'm the greater David. I am the bread of life. Uh, and he has another argument in verse 5. It says, or have you not read in the law on how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? So he points to the priests. He says, there's a group of people in our midst that, that not only don't rest on the Sabbath, they work harder than anybody. They're facilitating the worship of God and the prayers and the songs and they're sacrificing animals and they're covered in the blood. And Jesus points to the priests very specifically. Why? Because Jesus is the perfect priest. He is the fulfillment of all that the priests ever pointed to. He is the one who intercedes between God and man. And he is not only the one who makes the perfect sacrifice, he is going to be the perfect sacrifice. And in case that wasn't clear, he unpacks it some more. Verse 6, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. At this point, the whole crowd must have gasped. To speak against the temple was blasphemy because the temple represented God's presence with his people. 
And Jesus says, something greater than that's here. Yeah, because God has come down and has actually took on flesh to make his presence in our midst. As John said, he dwelt among us. He tabernacled with us. Do you see how Jesus is saying, look, everything that the Old Testament, all the laws that you so revere, they all point to me. Verse 7, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. He quotes Hosea chapter 6 verse 6. This is the second time Jesus has quoted Hosea 6, 6 in three chapters. In Matthew 9, he did it. And here he does it again. He says, if you just knew at the heart of every law is that I desire mercy. I desire mercy. And if you would have known that, you wouldn't have condemned my disciples as guiltless. Because by the way, they're not, guil- they're not guilty. Verse 8. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Do you see what he's saying? The Sabbath, guys, was my idea. I'm the one who invented it. I'm the one who created it. And it is good. Of course, they don't hear that. They don't see any of that. They're just now angry. I imagine in their hearts and their minds, they're beginning to plot Jesus' demise. But the story goes on in verse 9. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand and was... And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? Do do you see what's going on here? So there is a man who has a deformity. And in their worldview, they would have said, well, he deserved it. He was probably a wicked sinner, or at least his parents were wicked sinners. And so this man, forget that he's made in the image of God. This man has to beg every day and hope that he gets enough for his daily bread. And they say, you know what? We can use him. We can use him to accuse Jesus. And so they go and they they bring this man who clearly can't can't provide for himself, can't work, is dependent on on the kindness of others, and and they, they show him no kindness. They just want him to be a tool for their plan and says so that they might accuse him. And Jesus is having none of this. Verse 11, he said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? First of all, he just exposes their hypocrisy. He says, look, if your own sheep falls into a pit, two reasons why you're going to get that. First, because you recognize it's a creature of God and you don't want it to suffer. So you're going to bring it out of the pit. But more than that, you hypocrites. It's because it represents your bank account, your checkbooks, and you're going to do whatever it takes to protect yourself. So you're being hypocritical. Now, at this point, we got some insight from the other gospels. Mark and Luke both tell this story as well. And they kind of give us different pictures. If you were here last week, you remember that when Pastor Matthew was talking about this passage where Jesus says he is gentle and lowly, he says this is the character of God, that he's compassionate, he's mercy, he's gentle, and he's lowly. And that it actually takes quite a lot to provoke God to anger. But in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 3, verse 5, at this point when they bring the man to him, it says Jesus was, it could be translated, epically angry. He was furious. He was provoked. What provoked Jesus to, to the point of being furious with these guys? And it was simply this. 
that the law of God that he had given to his people was meant to be a blessing and a gift. David says, your law is like honey on my lips. And they had taken the blessing, especially the blessing and the gift of Sabbath, which was meant to give the people rest and renewal and refreshment in body, mind, soul, and spirit. And they had twisted it. And they had made it into something burdensome. They had made it into a religious pursuit for self-righteousness and it angers Jesus. And it angers Jesus that they would use this image bearer, this poor man with his crippled hand, and they would use him not for mercy, not for grace, but to use him to condemn Jesus. And so he's angry and says, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? He says, this man is an image bearer of God. If you knew what this meant, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You have seen this man as a man who images me. And so he says, so it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It's not just, Sabbath isn't just to stop and cease from everything. It is lawful. It is, it is almost required that you do good on the Sabbath. Verse 13, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the others. This should have been a point of raucous celebration. Oh, praise God. This man is whole again. He's been healed. He can provide for his family. He can work. He can do all those. It should have been a celebration. But these Pharisees who were so intent on holding on to their power and their authority and their control and their, their, their prestige in the community. They're condemning Jesus for working, his work of healing on the Sabbath. They condemn him for his good work. And look what he does. Verse 14 is, is a great and tragic irony. But the Pharisees went out, conspired against him how to destroy him how to murder him. Do you see what they're doing? They're working together to do the evil work of plotting Jesus' death because they don't like that he did the good work of healing an image bearer. That's how twisted we can get. Okay, so understanding that now, we ask the question, what is it that Jesus wants for us in this? And I believe, again, he wants us to see a a path to come to him to find rest and renewal for our souls. He wants us to embrace what I'll call a disciplined pursuit of rest and renewal. A disciplined pursuit of rest and renewal. I'm going to offer up a few things of why we should pursue rest and renewal and then how we might pursue rest and renewal. And you, you could come up with your own list, maybe a better list, share it with us on Facebook, whatever. But here's three things of why we should pursue the discipline of Sabbath rest and renewal. The first one is Sabbath rest reminds us of who we are and whose we are. It reminds us when we intentionally pull out, when we, when we stop striving, when we stop working, when we, stop, when we get off our screens and, and we just pause and rest, we were reminded, yes, we are limited. We're limited mentally. I don't know all that you know. We're limited in energy. I get tired. I have to sleep every night. We're, we're limited in, in, in all ways. When we rest in that, we just recognize who we are and then we recognize who God is. God, you're not limited. You never get tired. You never give up. When I go to sleep at night, I wake up and the earth is still here. You are still sustaining us. And so, first of all, we recognize who we are and then we recognize whose we are. 
See, the problem with striving and straining all the time is we're trying to uh, make a name for ourselves. But, but here's the deal. In Christ, by grace through faith, if you've come to him, you are an adopted son or daughter. We, we sung about it. You will reign with him forever. Your title in eternity is far greater than anything you could ever achieve on this side of eternity through your work and effort alone. So we rest in that. The second thing is Sabbath rest is an act of worship. It, it is a moment for us to step down from our teeny tiny little thrones and, and lift our eyes to the one who is on the throne, the one who is worthy of all praise, honor, and glory, and say, God, you are God and I am not. And you're in control and I'm not. And so I'm just going to give myself to worship. As we pour out in worship, he pours out renewal and refreshment for our souls. And number three, Sabbath rest should lead to loving our neighbor as ourselves. One of the the reasons I think we are not making as much impact in our city as possibly we could is because we, like the rest of our community, are tired, we're worn out uh, from just skipping across the surface. And Jesus is saying, hey, Come, come to the deep end. It's calm. The water's cooler. It's deeper over here. And when you experience that rest in him, when you're filled mentally, spiritually, physically, renewed in him, now you're equipped and empowered to love one another. I think a person that does this so well in history, it's a guy named Eric Liddell. Uh, you might have seen the movie, The Chariots of Fire. Uh, this is from 1981, but it's a true story of Eric Liddell. Eric Liddell was born to uh, missionaries in China, and they sent him back to Scotland to be, uh, go to boarding school, and he, and he loved that life. He loved playing with his friends, he, and he excelled in sports. He loved rugby and field hockey, uh, and he especially loved to run. Even though his, tec- his technique and style was terrible, he would run with his head back and his arms flailing, but he was faster than everyone else. And so the movie is about uh, the buildup to the 1924 Olympics in Paris, and there, England was actually putting forward two runners, uh, and, and Eric was, was favored to win the 100-meter dash. But there was another guy called Her- Harold Abrahams, and there's two quotes in the movie that kind of capture two ways to live, two ways to, to go about life. Let me just read Harold Abrahams' quote. He says, In one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down the corridor, four feet wide, And then listen to what he says. With 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? See what he's saying? In this moment, when I step into the starting block, I've got 10 seconds to justify my worth and my value and my existence. But will I? I think that's how so many of us live. That, that is the statue of the self-made man. Whatever your thing is, I've got, I've got two years. I've got this project. I've got this short life to justify my existence. But will I? And you're just straining and striving. And there's never any peace in that. Compare that to Eric speaking to his sister at one point. He says, I believe God made me for a purpose. But he also made me fast. And when I run... I feel his pleasure. Do do you see the difference there? On the outside, they're both training. They both have a goal. They're both striving for something. But one, even in his striving, he's resting. And the other, even in his resting, he's striving. 
And Jesus is inviting us to rest in everything, in Him. And so, as the story goes on, true story, uh, they're in Paris and the, the organizers set one of the preliminary events for Sunday, which Eric had set aside for his Sabbath. But Eric was so, uh, uh, so secure in who he was in Christ that, that he said, I'm not going to run. And they tried to convince him. They said, no, you, you can do it. It's for your country. It's for your own fame. You're gonna, this is what you were made for. And he says, you know what? I don't need to make a name for myself. I'll be fine. And so he sat out and Harold Abrams ran and won the gold and they celebrated him. Well, later in, in, in the, the Olympics, he, he, he goes into the 400 meter, which he wasn't his specialty, and he runs and he sets way behind, but he, he runs and he catches everyone and he wins the gold. And after that, he uh, goes and finishes up his school and he goes back to China to serve with his brother as a missionary there. But he understood who he was and he could rest in who he was. And he took his Sabbath seriously. So how? How do we go about disciple, the discipled pursuit, uh, disciplined pursuit of Sabbath rest and renewal? Here's just five suggestions. First of all is to regularly remember the gospel. Regularly rehearse the gospel. Regularly remember that in Christ you are secure. In Christ you are adopted son or daughter. In Christ there is no striving. There is no earning God's love. He has earned it for you. You do not have to justify your existence. He justified your existence on the cross. And so we remember the gospel. And we do that together. The Word of God says, do that together. Do that regularly where you rehearse the gospel. You sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs where we remind one another of the gospel. We, we, we go through the liturgy where we're reminded of the gospel. In a few minutes, we'll come to the table and, and enjoy the, the meal of, of communion to remember the gospel that our striving can cease because he's purchased us back. So remember the gospel. Number two, pursue purposeful unproductivity. <laughs> this is just, whatever your thing is, just say, I'm going to do something for the renewal of body, mind, and soul, and it's not going to get me any productivity. So, so for me, for example, I'm a pastor, so I, I like reading theology books. I, I like all that. But on my day off, on my Sabbath, which is Thursdays, I'm not reading uh, Spurgeon or J.I. Packer. I, I'm reading The Hunger Games. I mean, that's what I just read, actually. Uh, so I'm reading Dystopian Future because I can't use that at all in my work. Well, actually, I just did. But you get the point. I'm, I'm purposely disconnected, purposely doing nothing that's going get, to get me advanced in my striving. So whatever, whatever that is for you, purposeful unproductivity. Number three, I, I think this is a big one, disconnect from technology. I think one of the reasons we are so frazzled and so shallow in our reserves is that this constant connection. And, and psychologists have said that this is not good for our souls. Constantly being online, constantly being engaged. One of the things we learned from COVID-19 is a lot of us can work from home, but the problem is you're always at work in that moment. And so there's got to be a disconnection. The best uh, kind of rule for this is, I think, from Andy Crouch in a book called The TechWise Family. And he suggests three things. He says, uh, you should one hour each day as a family totally disconnect from all screens, all internet, all anything in the outside world and just uh, be, uh, do some Sabbath rest together one hour a day. 
And so he did that. So then, then one day a week, 24 hours, where you don't connect, you, you don't plug in, you don't go online, you're just totally disconnected. So I tried that this week, I tried that on Thursday, didn't pick up my phone, didn't go online, didn't check my email, and guess what happened? The world continued to move on. And that's going to happen because you just recognize, God, you're in control, and I'm not, and I'm going to disconnect. And it was one of the most refreshing days I've had in a long time. Tomorrow we're going to go on vacation. And I'm going to do the third thing that Andy Crouch suggests. He says, one week a year, totally disconnect. Don't check an email. He says, he, he sends that little email reply, I'm out of the office. But he adds to it, he says, uh, I'm out of the office and I will not return your email. <laughs> so if you want me to reply to you, email me again next week. Just totally, he's like, it would do no good to totally disconnect and then have a mountain of work to do. So I'm going to try that this week. So disconnect from technology. Fourth, uh, stir your affections for Christ. This is just kind of a Puritan way of, of saying, what is it that, that I do that helps me just see and savor Jesus best? And for some of you, it's going for a run, going for a hike. Some of you, it's just relaxing, uh, reading through the Psalms, maybe watching a movie, uh, turning on some worship music. Whatever the thing is, build it into your disciplined pursuit of rest so that you know you're going to be stirring your affections for Christ. And fifth, Slow down with friends and family. Just do some slow time. Like gather your friends or your family. Go to the store and, and get food that you actually have to prepare. And, and prepare it together and enjoy a slow meal and enjoy your time together. But then don't just leave it for one person to clean up, but all clean up together. Just this slow time together. Maybe once or twice a year, gather friends and family and go eat at a restaurant outside your tax bracket. And just take a really slow time and enjoy your food and enjoy your meal, enjoy your steak, enjoy your wine, whatever the case may be. And guess what? You don't even have to put it on Instagram. You can just enjoy it. But remember that it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. That's what Jesus said. So Eric Liddell, when he moved back to China and he began to serve as a medical missionary there with his brother, Shortly thereafter, the Japanese came into China and basically took over, gathered up all the missionaries and put them in an internment camp. And in 1943, he, uh, with many other missionaries and missionary kids and families, they were in this miserable Japanese internment camp with terrible conditions. And there was, it was just a dark place. And there was backbiting and infighting amongst the missionaries. But, but, but Eric was a source of light there. He was known to the kids as Uncle Eric. And others tell the story of him just always pouring himself out to, to teach kids chess and play games and, and help them out. He was just pouring himself out because he wanted to bring some light to the kids. But he continued at first to observe his Sunday Sabbath time. But then he noticed something happening. Remember, God desires mercy and not sacrifice. And he saw that the kids on Sunday that would go out to the hockey field, it, it would deteriorate such that they would begin to fight and even uh, get into fist fights with each other. And Eric understood what Jesus was getting at. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And so he said, I'll referee, I'll coach. And he gave up his Sabbath and he did good for the kids in the camp. And he would pour his life out so much there that he would die in 1945 in the camp because it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So just remember, Jesus has invited you to find rest in him and he's given you a path. 
said, be disciplined in your pursuit of disconnecting, resting in me. And no, you don't have to justify your existence. You don't have to struggle and wrestle because Jesus on the cross struggled and wrestled in your place for your sins. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He became sin that knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus purchased that and that's what we're going to remember here. So as God's people, may we be a people that find rest and renewal in him that we might love him and love others better. Let's pray to that end. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you, Jesus, for the good gift of Sabbath. Lord, we have neglected it. We have ignored it to our own peril. Jesus, thank you that you purchased uh, the, the legal demands of the Sabbath so that we might experience it all as gift and as grace in you. Jesus, thank you that on the cross you worked for our salvation so that we would never have to. Thank you on the cross you purchased our rest forever in you. So Lord, let us live like that for your glory and our joy this week. In Jesus' name, amen.